When Pack meets with Pack in the jungle, and neither will go from the trail, lie down till the leaders have spoken. It may be fair words shall prevail. All rise. All persons having business before this honourable court are commended to give their attendance and they shall be heard. Be seated, please. It was a quintessential circumstantial case. It was a jigsaw of a whole lot of pieces. That's how lead prosecutor John Champion saw the case he'd prepared against the four Pongsu crew members. Master Songman's son, political secretary Choi Dong Song, and engineers Reeman Jin and Reju Chon for aiding and abetting the heroin importation. And, you know, with a, with a circumstantial case, you put this little fact here and you put that one there and that one there, and if you've got enough of these facts, you're able to build up the complete picture of what happened. You can have gaps, but you just need enough to be able to persuade a jury that you've got a case. Last episode, we heard how the prosecution team, including John Champion, Susan Armour, and Federal Police Case Officer Celeste Johnston, went to Seoul. They were there to meet North Korean defectors to learn as much as they could about a system that deemed it necessary to place political secretary Choi on the Pong Su. It was incredibly difficult for the police to obtain evidence. Little was known about North Korea. We also heard high-profile North Korean defector Thay Yong Ho describe the pain of having to choose between his sons and his siblings when he crossed to the West. He knew whichever choice he made would cause great suffering. We should be ready to accept the sacrifice of my relatives and my brother and sister who are left in North Korea. Meanwhile, the other 26 men from the Pongsu were deported back to North Korea amid fears for their future. They said this a diplomatic cars have been coming out here with men in very good suits. And the next thing I knew, the guys were gone. This episode, we go inside the Melbourne courtroom for the final battle over the fate of Master Sun, political secretary Choi, and the Pongsu's two engineers. The case would test the endurance of all involved. Because it was such a long process from the committal through to trial, you know, the committal itself was five months and the trial was seven months plus all the... Federal Police Officer Celeste Johnston was on the prosecution side. Jack Dalziel, for the defence, found it equally taxing. It was almost a a seven-day-a-week kind of case. The jury got Fridays off, so decided the jury needed Fridays spare to be able to go about daily life because it was going to be a long case. The trial took place before Supreme Court Justice Murray Callum in the same enormous courtroom the committal hearing was held in. It began in May 2005, more than two years after the spectacular capture of the Pong Su by Australian forces. Right from the outset, there was a strange atmosphere among the lawyers prosecuting the case, almost an ambivalence. The prosecution's senior solicitor, Susan Armour, sums it up. Where the, you know, the consequences of losing might be the lesser of two evils. Kim Jong-il's regime was so unpredictable, so brutal, that Susan and others believed Master Sun and company might be better off being found guilty and kept in Australia, albeit in a jail cell. There was also another way in which the Pong Su trial was different. Amongst other things, it's one of the few matters I've done where the investigations continued 
during the trial because more material came to light, so it actually kept going. As the testimony began, police were still gathering expert statements to bolster their circumstantial case. Technical statements as a rule to do with the tides, the weather, the engine, mechanical repairs on maritime vessels in general, that also persons who had prepared expert reports about the carbon build-up on the cylinder heads of the Pong Su. And an unusual rapport emerged between the opposing sides. Susan as the lead solicitor for the Commonwealth and Celeste as the police case officer knew that the resources of the government gave the prosecution a big advantage. So they did what they could to ease the burden for Jack and the other defence lawyers. We'd had a photocopier moved up. It's marvellous what a photocopier can do to facilitate relationships. There was a photocopy key. If people needed to make copies of documents from the defence side, I gave them the key. Those small things make a difference. Celeste and Susan were both responsible for making sure everyone had the right documents and that witnesses turned up as scheduled. Luckily, they found they shared the same work habits. Here's Celeste describing Susan. She's as finicky as I am with, uh, <laughs> with detail and organisation and everything. And Susan describing Celeste. Fortunately, we work in the same way. We both had a to-do list. We'd both sign off on things. But all the organisation in the world and an army of expert witnesses would mean nothing if the prosecution couldn't get past the only thing that mattered. If the jury decide you haven't got over that reasonable doubt threshold, well, that's it. From the bounce, Nichols wins the knockout, but Richmond dash in to snatch the initiative away from Carlton. Naughty bursts away and his well-placed pass gives Moore a chance to beat Lofts close to the goal square. Everyone knew that where the SP bookmakers were and what hotels they were and what they weren't. And, and uh, liquor licensing, you know, um, after hours, Sunday trading, things like that were all prohibited. Pickpockets, they don't exist anymore. Ian Hayden harks back to a different age when just about anything fun, like drinking after 6pm, was illegal in Victoria. And police squads were segregated along religious lines. Freemason, the Catholics, that was a big issue in those days. Again, something else has disappeared. Still tall and strong-looking in his 70s, Ian was a talented sportsman who played 30 games for the Australian Football League powerhouse Richmond in the 1960s. His career was cut short at 23 by a knee injury that could have been repaired pretty easily today. But footy's loss was the law's gain. By the time the Pong Su case came around, Ian was a veteran barrister who'd been involved in some of Australia's most notorious criminal trials. A city in shock over the brutal execution of two young policemen. The victims from families with a strong police background and the slayings described as the worst since the Kelly Gang murders last century. Good evening, I'm Brian Naylor and that report dominates our bulletin. There's a massive police hunt for the killers who senselessly slaughtered two young policemen on a routine job in South Yarra at dawn today. One, the killing was um, 1988, Anthony Farrell. Um, there were four charged. In October 1988, young Victorian police constables Stephen Tynan and Damien Eyre were ambushed at night in Inner Melbourne and shot dead aged 22 and 20. Their slaying sent shockwaves through the community. Police believe the officers were both struck down by single blasts from a double-barrel shotgun. Senior Constable Tynan was hit in the head as he inspected the stolen car's interior and Constable Eyre blasted in the back as he looked on from outside. 
he was shot twice more, possibly with his own service revolver, which is now missing. Ian was the barrister for one of the accused, Tony Farrell. Farrell wasn't one of the shooters, but police believed he was involved in the planning. They offered him a deal to testify against the three suspected assassins. Instead, Farrell stayed silent and faced trial along with the others, only to be acquitted. Some police believe he was threatened by his fellow accused to keep his mouth shut. We'll never know because he died in 2018, aged 52. Nearly 17 years after those police killings, Ian was worried that those in authority might again try divide and conquer tactics against his client. Your, your client was Captain Song? Yeah, Captain Song. Yeah. Song man's son, yeah. The captain seemed sort of fairly wise and um, uh, he was much older than the rest of them and sort of were, were set in his ways. And were... Ian and Master's son were the same age and hit it off, despite the language difficulties. It became clear to Ian and solicitor Jack Dalziel early on that the prosecution were gunning for Master Son. If they could prove he knew about the heroin on board, then those beneath him would probably also be found guilty. But if they couldn't convince the jury that the captain knew, then the case against the others fell over. So it was vital the other three defendants lock in behind Master Son. Here's Jack. It's a, a superficially, it's an easy defence to just sort of say, well, don't ask me, ask the captain in a case like this. But also, I and Ian Hayden thought that the captain is, who does have to answer the questions because he is the captain really, if he's acquitted, then everyone's going to be acquitted. And um, to that extent, it was best for the, the, the parties to sing off the same song sheet and work together. In the end, Master Sun was the only one of the four on trial to give evidence and be cross-examined. In most criminal cases, defence lawyers advise their clients not to take the stand because it's the prosecution's job to make the case. A jury cannot infer anything just because an accused chooses to stay silent. But Master Sun was adamant about having his say. So Ian and Jack made sure that he presented well to the jury. He had about 30, 34 grandchildren, which uh, we got, got that out for the, in front of the jury, uh, um, like, uh, unfortunately, and uh, he was busy buying little presser, uh, presents for his grandkids and his uh, dresses for his wife and things like that, and he, he was a very, you know, you couldn't see him as a criminal. And Master's son wasn't budging on the points where he was most vulnerable. It was a pure coincidence that he stopped at Boggley Creek to repair an engine cylinder at the same time as the onshore party of Lamb, Lee and Teng were waiting to grab hold of the heroin. Master Sun said he had no idea Wong and the drowned man were on board or that the Pong Su was carrying heroin. He said he'd been tricked into coming to Melbourne by a fictitious Malaysian company that had chartered the Pong Su to pick up a fleet of BMWs. The captain wasn't physically involved. Uh, and there's no evidence that he was verbally or any other way involved. But even Ian concedes that it's hard to believe the Pong Su just happened to stop at the same time and place as the international drug traffickers waiting ashore. In the onshore party yeah, was waiting. Yeah, the onshore party. Yeah. yeah. If they'd... Uh, so it's a big coincidence. A big coincidence. That was, that was the main case, yes, for the, the prosecution. For a master to say he didn't know what was going on is absolute rubbish. Captain John Millwood a maritime expert called by the prosecution, was bemused about the coincidences that Master Sun claimed. He must have known that he had a, an inflatable on board. 
he must have known uh, where he had anchored the ship and put the ship to start with. He knew he must have known when they put the boat over the side what they were doing. In fact, he would have had control of the ship at that time and probably made a lee for the ship uh, so they could safely get the boat over the side. A lee is a term used to describe the side of a ship that sits lower in the water when the wind is blowing strongly. Barrister Ian Hayden was also fully aware that the North Korean government must have had some knowledge of where the Pongsu was and what it was doing. The North Korean government was much more involved. You get a, got a feel for it after a while, and I, I still don't know the degree of culpability of uh, any of the uh, members of the government in um, in North Korea itself. Uh, but uh, but uh, from everything I read, I'm sure they were involved in that because the regime was pretty impoverished. But this didn't mean much when it came to the Pongsu case. Here's the prosecution's senior solicitor, Susan Armour, on why. This was not North Korea on trial. These were the individuals. Still, North Korea was making a lot of noise about getting the Pongsu back, even though she was barely seaworthy and had been sitting idle for two years in Sydney Harbour. At one point, a North Korean official threatened legal action to pressure the Australian government to release the ship. But no legal action was ever launched. Like all the other Australians involved in the Pongsu case, Ian Hayden was on a steep learning curve when it came to North Korea. But in an age when Google was still in its infancy, he had a secret weapon. So when I had this book, book and the, do you know the Complete Idiot's Guides? I do. It's Complete Idiot's Guide to North Korea, because I had it covered in a brown paper thing so the jury didn't see what I was getting the stuff out. <laughs> Ian didn't need the Idiot's Guide to North Korea to tell him about the country's policy of command and control. He saw it for himself by observing the interaction between one of the Pongsu's supposed private owners, John Hackbom, and the men from the ship. Even Master Sun and political secretary Choi were deferential and wary around Hackbom. He was um, very sharp. He was also um, secretive, like he, 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 he behaved as if you would expect somebody to behave and uh, who had some, uh, in a wartime situation, who had some authority. He was much smarter than most of these guys. He was smart in the way of the world, and uh, you could see the relationship between John Hackbom was uh, that they were his master. He was, he was their master. We met Hackbom in episode seven and heard that Australian authorities believed him to be a likely North Korean intelligence officer. This didn't mean he couldn't be charming. Solicitor Jack Dalziel took Hackbom at face value and found him to be good company. He even took him into country Victoria to have dinner with his parents. But Hackbom was clearly a man of influence. John Hackbom ran a pretty tight ship with regard to the uh, fellows. He, he wanted to be in every second conference and so on. Ian says Hackbom was particularly obliging with one bit of information. One area where he was uh, very helpful uh, was for the defence was this chartering idea and uh, the ship being chartered. Hackbom had documents with him which outlined an arrangement with a Malaysian company called Kimto. According to the documents, Kimto had chartered the Pongsu to collect some BMW cars in Melbourne. Of course, there were no BMWs waiting for them. John Millwood's career as a ship's captain based out of Hong Kong meant he was familiar with chartering arrangements. He said the Pongsu's supposed arrangement with Kimto wasn't worth the paper it was written on. When I read that charter party, it wasn't really a charter party at all. It was, it, it was a note of engagement. It really wasn't a charter party at all. 
Okay. Could have been written written by anybody for anybody. So it was just not a believable document. It was not a believable document. Yeah, it's probably a good way to put it. But the Kimto arrangement gave Hak Bom and the North Koreans a way of explaining why the Pongsu was off the coast of Lawn in April 2003. And when it turned out that Kimto wasn't a real company, well, Hak Bom and the North Koreans could just say that they'd been duped. Police would later link documents disposed of by Lam to this fake company. We'll come back to that in our final episode. The four that went to trial were always completely respectful of the process. There was never a difficulty with the way that they behaved. And that was a a very good strategy from their point of view. So they just sat at the back of the court and, and listened, completely emotionless. They never never murmured, talked, argued. Nothing came from the back of the court at all. Lead prosecutor John Champion was up against an opponent hard to dislike. The longer the trial went and the more the court heard about the facts of life in North Korea, the harder it was to see the accused as anything but men without the luxury of choice. So there's no reason for any member of a jury to take a dislike to any of these guys because there's no backstory to give on them and they came across as, like you said, respectful participants and... Oh, well, I do do recall them every time the jury went in and out of the courtroom, they bowed to the jury. Certainly, Jack and Ian were keen to enlist the jury's sympathy over the exacting and rigid conditions of life in North Korea. Say, look, you probably don't really understand how different it is for someone growing up in North Korea. You can't look at this case through our Australian eyes. There was the fact that these guys were in a system where they couldn't bucket or, you know, it was just, uh, it was totally foreign to them to, uh, to turn against the government. Plenty of people had been killed in North Korea for uh, disobeying the regime in some way. Senior prosecutor John Champion knew exactly what his opponents across the bar table were getting at. In fact, he and his team felt the same way. We all felt there was a real possibility that they were acting under orders. Uh, from somebody else. And if you're acting under orders in circumstances of um, the sort of life that we understand it may have been in North Korea, you've got to have a degree of sympathy for that because their family's back where they come from. Uh, So they're arguably in a very difficult position. Mm. Unlike people who, who, you know, are completely voluntary when they commit dreadful crimes, uh, I think these people could be distinguished from uh, that type of person. But the Pongsu Four were being tried under Australian law and for the extremely serious offence of helping to import a record amount of heroin into the state of Victoria. 150 kilos of heroin is a lot of overdoses, a lot of dead Australians. I thought that the likelihood that the captain, the master of the ship, should be convicted. The prosecution's case, though circumstantial, was strong. John Champion's opening summary ran to 158 pages, with barely a wasted word. He kept coming back to the two extra passengers, Wong and the man who drowned at Boggley Creek, who had joined the ship late. Then there were the Pongsu's modified fuel tanks and change of flag from North Korean to Tuvaluan. 
plus the mobile phone records showing contact between someone on the ship and the onshore party waiting in Australia. But according to the prosecution, the most damning evidence of all was the risky position Master Sun was prepared to place his ship and crew in on the night of April 15, 2003, off the coast of Law. Well, what is he doing stopping the ship and anchoring 500 metres off Boggley Creek in shocking conditions? And then to overnight, for the ship to disgorge a dinghy uh, with two men on board in the middle of the night in shocking conditions. The evidence, I think, really showed that you, that's not the sort of thing you do unless something extremely unusual is happening. Of course, then you've got to add to that the fact of the shore party being there and present on the shore at the time the Pong Su stopped. In late February 2006, Three years after the Pongsu departed her home port of Nampo in North Korea, the jury went away to deliberate on the massive information they'd heard over the previous seven months. Because the Pongsu trial was going to be long, 15 jurors were impanelled to spread the load. By the time the case ended, 13 were left, but only 12 jurors would get to deliver the verdict. Yes, she Things was like scoffing. That. She was, she, she, yes, she was scoffing at some of our propositions yeah. early in the trial. Yeah. Master Sun's barrister, Ian Hayden, is talking about one juror who wasn't buying much of the defence's story, particularly early on. So lawyers on both sides eagerly awaited the outcome of the jury ballot to see which member would be sent home. Prosecutor John Champion. And that happens immediately before the jury is due to retire to consider their verdict. And... I distinctly remember the ballot happening and the juror to be balloted off getting that news, or I think it's fair to say she was devastated. The unlucky juror was the one who initially appeared skeptical about Master Sun's account. Justice Callum sent the 12 remaining jurors out into the jury room whilst he addressed that juror in in the jury box and uh, she was distraught at the prospect of not being further involved in the jury. It was, um, yeah, not a scene I'd like to repeat again. Who knows if the ballot result had any bearing on the eventual decision by the jury? Did you have a particular feeling when the jury went out? Was it a, um... No, you never do. Mm. Never do. The longer they're out, the more doubt you have. And I think they were, they deliberated for nine days. Uh, well, it's one of the big moments in a criminal trial. And from our point of view, you know, there's a, when the jury goes out, in a sense, the job is done. We don't have any control over what the jury decides. Uh, and you, you, that's just the way the jury's verdict is completely inscrutable. It was just as nerve wracking for Jack Dalziel and the rest of the defence team. No, I think I was anxious. It's a sort of a limbo time there. After a seven-month trial, the Pongsu's captain and its chief engineer left court as free men. No, I'm very happy. The jury also acquitted the ship's first officer of aiding and abetting the heroin importation and its political secretary, whose job on board was to reinforce the Communist Party line. After a legal battle of nearly two years, costing taxpayers millions of dollars, the jury had spoken. Not guilty. 
Australian immigration officers handed the freed North Koreans bridging visas, giving them a week or so before they had to leave. So Master's son, Political Secretary Choi, the two engineers, the Pongsu's so-called owner, John Hak-bom, the Australian defence lawyers and their wives hit the town to celebrate. Jack Dalziel. We went to a restaurant up in Russell Street. Name I can't recall, but it had Korean. I know that Captain Song often said, and I think he meant it was very fond of Chinese whiskey, <laughs> and, um, and there was certainly some whiskey. For Des Appleby and Celeste Johnston, the not guilty verdict brought to an end almost three years of labour on the Pong Su case. I think you're disappointed, you know, um, in terms of um, a lot of work went into that case. Particularly the um, captain, we had a view that the case against him was very strong, so we thought there'd be a reasonable prospect that the jury would find him guilty. We put it before the court, um, we thought we had a case. Um, but um, ultimately the jury, um, yeah, didn't find them guilty. This ship was here for one reason and one reason only, and it didn't get there on its own, but you have to respect what the jury comes back with. Lead prosecutor John Champion and his senior instructing solicitor Susan Armour were understandably deflated. For all their work, for all the Commonwealth's resources and the strength of their case, it was the little guys with their suburban solicitor and an unlikely story who'd won. But looked at another way, the prosecution believed the real winner was almost certainly the Australian justice system. And they were comforted to know that the North Koreans had seen it at its best. Put the case up, you get the case to the jury. The, ju- the jury is fairly instructed by the judge. Everyone gets an even go. Uh, and if the jury comes back and uh, acquits the person you're prosecuting, that's the system that's worked. I'm not certain how many other systems would have acquitted North Koreans who were charged with importing heroin into their country. Disappointing at one level, but I think the jury system, they weren't, we did not satisfy them beyond reasonable doubt. And I thought, given the hype around the matter, I thought that was a, a tribute to the jury system. In the few days before they returned home, Master's son, Political Secretary Choi and the engineers spent some time in and around Melbourne, doing the things regular tourists do. Once they would want to have a look around the city or anything, they didn't want to see go and see Parliament House or see how our system of government worked or anything. They just say they wanted to see our forests and um, the wildlife and the kangaroos. They were desperate to see them and uh, they were like kids. When I think about those men in these few final days, I still wonder if this was the most free they'd ever be. Before he left, Master Son gave Ian Hayden, the barrister who had helped him win his freedom, a parting gift. It was a hand-stitched tapestry of a tiger on a snow-capped mountain. But uh, I can see that anyone could see that there was a lot of work went in. Yeah, a lot of work on. TV news crews followed Master Sun to the airport the day he left Australia, nearly three years after he skippered the Pong Su into Boggley Creek. Though he was a captive here, Captain Song Man's son said he will return. Well, I uh, certainly will come back to Australia as a captain of 
His departure comes after a not guilty verdict on Sunday ended a 119-day trial. I was actually forced to spend three years in the prison just because we had been cheated by this uh, uh, drug smuggling organisation, obviously somewhere in Southeast Asia, I suppose. That just left four men in Australia, the ones who'd already been convicted and jailed for their roles in the enormous drug haul, Lam, Wong, Teng and Lee. We'll return to them in our final episode. And then there was the Pong Su herself, the rusty cargo ship with her secret compartment and her pictures of Kim Jong-il, her clean scrub decks and all her stories was still moored in Sydney Harbour. And she was costing the Australian government $2,500 a day. The Australians knew the North Koreans desperately wanted their ship back, but that was never going to happen. Now they no longer had to look after the Pongsu, the Australians had a different plan in mind. Spectacular, but kind of sad. On the 23rd of March 2006, the Pongsu was stripped of all fuel and oil pollutants. She was towed out to sea and set adrift about 140 kilometres off Jarvis Bay. Then, four Royal Australian Air Force F-111 fighter bombers approached. dropped two 800-kilogram precision-guided bombs which smashed into the Pongsu's hull. Footage shows two bright flashes and the ship's red and black bulk disappearing into a huge dark cloud as debris flies up and out. What was left of the Pongsu quickly sank in the deep water. And that was the end of her long voyage. Coming up on the final episode of The Last Voyage of the Pong Su. Then within a week he had 300 t-shirts made up. He's going to make a fortune, all this shit. The Pong Su emblem on, with the bloody heroin sticker on the t-shirt. It was a ripper. You could get white ones or red ones. I had a couple of them. They were as close as I've seen two men in a non-sexual way trust you know they they ate together they walked together they worked together there's a stateless person you can look at the vx nerve gas attack in kuala lumpur airport which shows the extent to which certain parties in north korea are willing to go The Last Voyage of the Pong Su is brought to you by the newsrooms of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. To read more and to watch the videos referenced in this episode, head to our websites. While you're there, why not take out a subscription to help power independent Australian journalism and productions like this podcast. If you're enjoying this series, leave a review on iTunes and recommend us to a friend. The Last Voyage of the Pong Su is reported by Richard Baker. Field recording and audio editing by executive producer Rachel Dexter. 
Narrative consultant is Kate Cole-Adams. Siobhan McHugh is consulting producer. Music and composition by Vicky Hansen. Sound design and mixing by John Greenfield. Assistant producer is Margaret Gordon. And Tom McKendrick is head of audio. Thanks to our cast of actors, Chi Kwan Lee is played by Andy Song. Kyung Fa Teng is played by Anthony Ting. And Yao Kim Lam is played by Jason Chong. Casting by Catapult Casting. Script translations by Yan Zhuang. Additional audio from Channel 9 and the VFL. The reading you heard at the start of this episode was from The Law of the Jungle by Rudyard Kipling, read by Jason Chong. Mm-hmm.